Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. This morning's reading is Nehemiah chapter 2, and this begins on page 484 in the Church Bibles. Nehemiah chapter 2 on page 484. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was bought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king... And if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take and when will you come back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king... May I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambala the Honorite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, 
Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sambale the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you very much, uh, Felicite and, and Paul, for reading. So, as I should just say uh, a particular word of thanks to Paul this morning. I arrived wet, I arrived dispirited, and uh, we began and we gathered in prayer together in the back room. The first thing that Paul said is, thank you, Lord, for this rain. It's such a blessing to us. <laughs> and it is a reminder, isn't it, that our reservoirs are, are down and, and water is, is so important. And actually, rain is a gift. And uh, so we lift our hearts. We thank the Lord this morning for the rain. And uh, there we are. Well, let me immediately add my welcome to that of Matt. It's, it's lovely to see you. And as I look around, it's, it, I'm really enjoying naming. I'm really enjoying getting to know, uh, know you slowly but surely. And also to see uh, new faces each week. So uh, please come, be part of our family, and plug in. And we'd like to do everything we can to enable you to do so. Well, we're back in uh, Nehemiah this morning. We're back in... Uh, we're looking at chapter 2, but before we, we, we look at this together, would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the scriptures, and we thank you especially that every word of it you have given. And we pray as we look at it together that by your spirit you would instruct our hearts that we might not only be hearers of the word, but that truly we might be doers of it also. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we have in English a number of proverbs that urges to action when the time is right. Shakespeare wrote, There is a tide in the affairs of men, which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. And in the days when blacksmiths were common, the phrase, strike while the iron is hot, was, was very uh, familiar. And in the second chapter of Nehemiah, we come to just such a moment. Now, last week, you remember that we left Nehemiah. He was weeping. He was mourning, and he was praying over the brokenness of Jerusalem, seeking God on behalf of the people. And Nehemiah knows his Bible. He knows uh, the Old Testament. He, he knows the Pentateuch. He knows the blessings and curses of God promised in the covenant that God made with his ancestors. So in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 30. And he knows that the lot of God's people has been brought on by their unfaithfulness. Their failure to keep their side of the covenant. To love the Lord their God as they should. We see Nehemiah's clear understanding of this in his prayer back there in chapter 1 verse 8. If you are unfaithful, 
I will scatter you amongst the nations. He's quoting there one of the curses from Deuteronomy chapter 28. And of course, that is what happened with the exile. A hundred years earlier, the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem. And you'll see that the simple timeline of events uh, behind me. Take a look. Uh, the Babylonians, they destroyed the temple, the symbol of God's salvation, and burned the walls, the symbol of God's protection, and swept the people of God into a foreign land, into exile. You'll see exile right at the bottom there. But God's covenant also included a promise of blessing. End of chapter 1, verse 8. But if you return to me, I will return to you. If you return to me by confessing your sins, acknowledging where you have fallen short, and cry out to me individually and collectively, I will return to you. And last week we saw how Nehemiah did just that on behalf of himself and the people. So for our purposes, as we see on the timeline, we are post-exile. We are back in Jerusalem. Now we also saw that while we are not Nehemiah, this story teaches us timeless biblical principles that are just as relevant for today as they were all those years back in Nehemiah's time. And the same principle applies today. If we return to God, he will return to us. And this morning, we see Nehemiah returning, raising the sails and the spirit of the wind of God filling them. And we see God coming to Nehemiah and to his people again. We see the relentless faithfulness of God to a faltering, a stumbling people. We see God listening to the prayers of his people and answering them in quite a remarkable way. Now, before we dig into chapter 2, a couple of quick things for us to notice. Two things. First, Nehemiah was asking in his prayer that God would do something today. Chapter 1, second part of verse 11. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, King Artaxerxes. And the next day he would pray, today. And the next day he would pray, today. And on and on it went for 16 weeks, asking day after day that God would intervene. See, Nehemiah had to learn some patience then in how God answers prayer. Second, notice that Nehemiah is asking in this prayer that God would not only do something about the situation in Jerusalem, but he, that he would use Nehemiah. Give success to your servant today. That's an amazing thing for him to pray. How in the world was, was Nehemiah going to get to Jerusalem from, from Susa? How would those circumstances ever be brought about that a servant of the Persian king would find himself a thousand miles away on a task that would actually take 12 years. Perhaps Nehemiah you know, didn't know the answer to that, that question, to that prayer. Perhaps it's like one of those prayers that I've certainly uttered, and I imagine that you have also, when you've said, Lord, I'm not even sure what I'm asking here, and I'm certainly not sure how it's going to, to, to be answered, and I don't know how you, you want it to be answered, but this is what I long for. Help me, Lord. Help me to play a part. Amen. No, we don't, we don't know when and how the Lord will answer our prayers. 
Our calling, as we see here, see here, modeled by Nehemiah, is to be willing to offer ourselves unconditionally to the Lord's service. And as we will see, God is the one who opens the door at the right time. Our question for one another this morning is, do we know anything of that desire to see the work of God flourish and thrive in our country and in our nation as it has in past days? Are we, you and me as God's servants, willing to intercede and pray for Sheffield, for Fullwood and the surrounding area, to pray as a church and to ask the Lord personally in prayer, I'm really not sure what my part is, where my role is in my workplace, with my neighbors, what my witness is to be, what my role is to be here, even within the church. But please use me. Grant me success, Lord, in what you're asking me to do. And help me to be led by you. And I want us to notice that in order to see this prayer answered, the Lord would patiently teach Nehemiah three key things. And we see in these verses the first evidence of the deep work that the Lord has been doing in Nehemiah's life these past four months as he has been wrestling with God in prayer, learning to wait. We see that Nehemiah's first instinct is to delight in revering God's name. In chapter 1, verse 11, we read, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. You see, the book of Nehemiah, as we reminded ourselves last week, is first and foremost not actually a story about Nehemiah and his exploits, or a story of the people of Israel and how they rebuilt the walls, but it's a story of the faithfulness of God and the people of God learning afresh to worship him to recover a delight in revering God's name. And that would, be a, that would be a good thing for us, wouldn't it? To delight in God again. To be excited about being around him. You know, it's like a child who's excited that mummy or, or daddy are, are, are going to be home soon. And, and they're looking forward to being around him. So they're running around the house, looking out the window, waiting for mummy or daddy to come home. And to help us do this, Nehemiah uses a literary technique to highlight the qualities of God. Why we would want to worship him. Now, many of us will have read uh, the book's Harry Potter stories. But for those of us who haven't, J.K. Rowling uses a character called Draco Malfoy, the baddie, as a foil to highlight the good qualities of Harry Potter. Draco and Harry have much in common. They're both, for example, popular with Professor Snape. Which, the things that they have in common actually only serves to highlight the difference. So Harry is not taken in by Lord Voldemort. And a foil is a, it's a literary term named after an old jewelry trick of setting a gem in a foil base to enhance its shine. And Artaxerxes has much in common with God, but is a foil to God. Artaxerxes is a king. He's powerful. And Nehemiah is his servant. 
But these things in common with God only serve to highlight the stark and obvious difference between the two. See, God is the king. God is all-powerful. And Nehemiah ultimately serves him. And you'll notice there at the end of chapter 1, we have this sort of standalone uh, statement or sort of introduction of his job. And, and Nehemiah tells the reader, I was cupbearer to the king. In other words, I was a servant to the king. And the question that we're to be asking as we read this story is, which king is Nehemiah ultimately serving? And as we read this story, we're to be asking, which king do I ultimately serve? Where does my loyalty lie? Am I more concerned about the approval of my boss or my friends or my God? The statement, I was uh, cupbearer to the king, sets up this tension. And it highlights it even more when we know what's going to happen. As a cupbearer, you just cannot be sad in front of the king of Persia. So we can also read in Nehemiah's job description of himself uh, as him saying to us, I'm about to put my life on the line for the king. Would we make the same sacrifice? Would we be willing to put our career on the line for the gospel? Well, as we've, uh, we've been saying, uh, we are at Nehemiah has been keeping this vigil of prayer from the month of Kislev to the month of, of Nisan, uh, four months of prayer. And I'm honestly not sure how Nehemiah understood the way in which God would answer his prayer. It may be that he had planned it to some degree, that when the opportunity presents itself, he, he would suddenly look sad in front of the king. We read there in verse 1, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. So our account here begins by saying that the king, that there was wine before the king, and perhaps that's meant to lead us to understand that the king was in a relatively good mood. We're told in a, a passing remark there in verse 6 that the queen uh, was sitting beside him, which suggests that it might have been a private occasion, since apparently it was not customary for the queen to appear at a formal banquet, apparently. Perhaps he's been waiting for just such a relaxed occasion uh, when Nehemiah is thinking, when the king is in a really good mood, I'll do something, I'll try and do what I can to try and provoke the king to ask me this question, and I'll have an answer for him. Maybe, maybe uh, we're meant to see that, yet maybe not, because at the end of verse 2, what actually transpires is the king says to him, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And the word sadness in Hebrew is a word that sounds exactly like the word evil. And the king isn't just saying, why are you sad? But the king appears to have been saying, you're plotting something. There's some evil intent in your heart. Which helps us understand why at the end of verse 2, Nehemiah says, he was very much afraid. It appears that his alarm at the king's comment 
on, the, on his dejection sprang from a sudden awareness of a breach of etiquette. For a servant's private feelings are usually best kept to himself, especially if they strike a jarring note or a threatening posture. As king, you, know, you want someone around you, don't you, who looks happy. You want somebody who gives you an air of confidence when you're about to drink. What you're about to drink isn't going to kill you. And there are actually uh, historical uh, incidents of cupbearers who were summarily, summarily executed for doing less than this. You see, I don't think Nehemiah, I don't know whether Nehemiah realized that in order to, for God to answer this prayer, he would be brought to the very edge of disaster. That God would put him in the most difficult circumstance imaginable in order to answer the prayer that he has been praying. See, Nehemiah didn't intend to be sad. But the king saw it because Nehemiah couldn't help it. Because the events in Jerusalem had so weighed him down that in the end his concern for the kingdom of God and the purposes of God were now beginning to show he was more concerned for God's reputation than for his own reputation. And it's what will compel us to speak up in a way that may, have, may leave us labeled or misunderstood or unpopular or less likely to get that promotion. In our witness to our unbelieving friends, it's that concern over the name of God that means we will think twice before we do this or do that because we know deep down that it is not right. It's this care for, for God's reputation that brings our pride to its knees. It, it's what moves us to say sorry to a Christian brother or sister who we have not spoken to for years. Because the reputation of God matters more than what they or anyone thinks about us. It may be this morning that the Lord has given us a burden for something that is out of our control. Humanly speaking, we can't do anything about it. And like Nehemiah, all that we can do is pray. And yet it's everything that we can do, as we'll see. Nehemiah suddenly finds himself in this extraordinary, difficult, tense situation where his life is in danger. And at the very moment he found this crushing burden almost intolerable, God answered him. He didn't have to speak to the king at all. The king spoke to him, verse 4. The king said to me, what is it you want? The initiative was not in Nehemiah's hands. It was in God's. What does Nehemiah do, verse 4? Then I pray to the God of heaven. It's, it's, it's an arrow-like prayer. It's the kind of prayer you utter when you're faced suddenly with something and you have to act quickly. Your boss asks you that difficult question. And you've got a millisecond to do it. And you just throw up this prayer. Lord, help me. What do I do right now? And it's a crucial moment in this man's life. You see, we're sitting here this morning and we're thinking to ourselves, you know, if I found myself in a difficult situation, in a difficult circumstance, something where even my life was on the line, this is just what I would do. I'd have an answer to the question. 
But you see, my friends, we need to understand that the only reason that Nehemiah had an instinct of, of prayer in a critical moment is because he had a life of prayer. And ultimately, it's the reason that he is able to answer Artaxerxes so faithfully in the face of such pressure. You see, not only was there a burden that Nehemiah carried, but a blessing Nehemiah coveted, verse 5. And the Lord is about to teach him something profound. He's going to experience the extraordinary blessing that comes from returning to God. So we see then that Nehemiah has developed a first instinct to revere God. Nehemiah is now given a profound insight. Verse 8, the gracious hand of God was on him. You know, are there those occasions in our lives when we've wondered, what is God doing? I was just talking to Josh, and he's thinking about applying for, for his A-levels. And, you know, I remember feeling, what is God doing when I failed my A-levels? I remember feeling it even more so when I had a place for law school, and I didn't get the degree that I hoped for. And yet, I look back on those moments, on those times of weeping and of crying, and Lord saying, what on earth is going on? And the Lord was teaching me through those times to rely on him, to trust him in a way that I wouldn't if things had gone straight forward. Nehemiah might have thought that God wasn't answering his prayer during those four months. But now we see God was preparing him for this conversation with the king. Verse 5, And I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Notice how bold he is? How, how empowered he is in this moment? What courage he has? He may have even surprised himself. You know, sometimes when we know that the Lord is with us, we surprise ourselves how empowered we are to speak out for him with grace and truth. Nehemiah wanted to know that he had been sent. He also wanted to know that he would be safe. Verse 7, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. So he wanted to know that he was sent that he would be safe, and also that he would be supplied. Verse 8, And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall by the residence I will occupy. He wanted to know that he was sent, safe, and would be supplied. Nehemiah had spent months in prayer, but we also see that during the time, the Lord had used it to also help him get a measure of the scale of the work that needed to be completed for the task. And a plan has emerged in his mind. And he's not sure whether it's his plan or it's God's plan. And sometimes there's only one way to, to, to find out, and that is to test it. Now, I read that very quickly, but I wonder, what were you thinking when you read those requests? And if you were anything... Like me, your first thought was to think, was he asking too much? Was he asking too much of God? Certainly not. See, no one, none of us can ask too much of God. 
We'll get tired of asking God for stuff long before God thinks we're asking too much. We just need to be asking for things that are in God's will or within his promises. King Artaxerxes, as we know, was more than able to give all that he asked. And all of these things were going to be essential for him to to complete the task once begun. And it must have been an immense encouragement as he began to rebuild the walls of of Jerusalem, as as he faced increasing opposition and discouragement, to look back upon that interview in the presence of the king and remember his commissioning and the promised supply of every need. And here there is a vital lesson for us, for us as a church, for us as individuals. Sent, safe, supplied. Now, all these factors are immensely important in the service of God. You see, the dominating factor in all our service is not the need of other people, but the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. His absolute sovereignty, his right to send his people anywhere, his right to order our steps as well as, as, well as order our stops. And if that principle is forgotten, the needs are so great that we shall certainly falter in his service. Consequently, the true source of inspiration for service is always behind us and never before us, never in front of us. The challenge will always be in front of us, as will the means. But the power and motive of all Christian service is not what I see ahead, but it is that indescribable, undefinable pressure and support of the Holy Spirit that has put me there in the first place. It's only such a conviction that God is behind this that will give us the stickability for any task. So Nehemiah did not only want to know that he was sent, he wanted to be kept safe. He knew that the journey that he was embarking upon uh, was going to be perilous and full of challenge. And there is a sense, isn't there, as a a church family, as we gather together, that we are beginning a journey together. And a question many of us will be asking is, are we going to be safe? It's been a great sadness to me, speaking to a variety of people from uh, different churches across the country over these last few years who have said to me, I've not felt safe in church. This surely can't be right. It breaks my heart to hear these stories. Nehemiah wanted to be sent. He wanted to be safe but he also wanted to be supplied. But as he would learn, rebuilding demands much more than material supplies. It demands spiritual resources. And as New Testament, New Covenant believers, the Scripture promises in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, that God will supply all our need according to the riches in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we've already received forgiveness for our sins and peace with God. The Holy Spirit has given our dead soul's life. We have new heart, yet we also have further needs. Needs to manage and see through every day. 
And while this is not a promise here in Philippians 4 uh, that, uh, that, that the Lord will not, that will not endure trouble and hardship in our lives, it's a reality. It is a promise, though, that God's faithful servants will be fully supplied for what we need to continue to serve Him. So when the time was right, when the Lord opened a door for Nehemiah to speak to the king, God moved the king to give Nehemiah everything he needed. And how do we, how do we explain that? How do we explain uh, this king who ordered the building, actually the building was to, to stop back in Ezra chapter 4? And here now he is reversing his order to allow his, his cupbearer to leave his service and to supply him with everything he needed to accomplish this task that is requested of the king. How do we explain that? Well, what we could do is we could say that Nehemiah used his, his immense powers of persuasion. You know, he was well prepared when he walked into the meeting and he crushed the preparation, the presentation. When Nehemiah walked away from the meeting with the king Artaxerxes, he could have been filled with, with pride. He could have been patting himself on the back. But that's not the way Nehemiah is thinking. Look at the last sentence of verse 8 with me. Nehemiah, how did you pull it off? And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. I just love that. The king might have granted Nehemiah's request, but God was the one who moved the king to do it. Nehemiah might have prayed and, and planned, but God was the one who brought the plans to fruition. And the truth of the matter is that that's your story. That's my story. Let me invite you just for a, a moment to, to look back over your life to date. And to see the many ways the gracious hand of God has been at work. And don't just, don't just look for those wonderful mountaintop times in your life. There's no doubt there that you'll recognize the, the gracious hand of God at work. I also want you to, to, to stop and be still and remember even in those most painful of turbulent, troubling times in your life. The Lord has been present. You see, the Lord can and does bring beauty from ashes, my friend. If it were not for the gracious hand of God upon us, where would any of us be this morning? Now, many of us may not be at that point, if we're absolutely honest. We may find ourselves not able to look back and can't imagine how it could be that God's gracious hand is at work in this particular situation. And that's okay. And God knows there is time. But give, give God time to show us that even in this painful moment that you're in, He has it and He's holding you. So on this journey then of Nehemiah returning to Jerusalem, God is at the same time returning to Nehemiah. God is returning to the people of Israel. He's richly blessing him and will richly bless his people. But there is one further thing Nehemiah has to grasp. We've seen then that his first instinct is to revere the name of God. And he's had a profound uh, insight to trust the gracious hand of God. We notice finally that he will look back on this journey with a lasting impression. Verse 20 to remember the God of heaven 
will give success. And you know, by the time we get then to verse 11, a lot has happened, a lot of traveling. Nehemiah will be, will be sore from days on horseback, having journeyed a thousand miles or so from Susa to Jerusalem. And understandably, he needs there a few days to rest. In verse 12, we see that he's, he's back on his horse and he's traveling again. This time, he's traveling around the city. Now, I don't know about you, but I often find that the best times for me to think are, are on a journey uh, are on a journey or, or particularly in a car. And it seems that Nehemiah has been using this time of traveling to settle on this lasting impression. And reading through the story, what could be the lasting impression that Nehemiah has? Well, first of all, it could have been that the task is too great. In verse 13, we're told that Nehemiah set out to inspect the walls and the gates. So there were ten gates, as we'll see next week. And he exits through the valley gates and can only get as far around as the third gate, the fountain gate, because the wall was so badly damaged. And then he re-enters the city, verse 15 and 16, via the valley gates. And we read there in verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. See, his, last, his, first, his lasting impression could have been that the task is simply too great. It could also have been that the people are too weary. Notice that. Nehemiah, he surveys the walls on his own, apart from with one or two trusted aides. Now, he can't be sure at, at this stage if the people are up for such a huge challenge, and he doesn't want to overwhelm them. So he told no one what he's thinking, verse 12. God's people, you see, are tired. They're beaten down. They're in need of love and grace. Their health all have almost certainly suffered from years of living with this uncertainty. That's why we see there in verse 11 that Nehemiah's first priority was to meet the needs of their welfare and their well-being. Nehemiah's lasting impression could also have been the fight is too difficult. The politics and the persecution. In verse 18 and 19, Nehemiah gets his first taste there of the, of the battle ahead with the taunting and mocking of Sambalat and his friends. No. Nehemiah's lasting impression was not one of these. It was not the task is too great. All the people are too weary. Or even that the fight is too difficult. It's rather verse 20. The God of heaven will give success even against the odds. Because as we've seen, Nehemiah has already witnessed the gracious hand of God at work. And in verse 18, he can't stop talking about it. And it's just the encouragement that the people of God need to, to, to hear. They need to be reminded about how God has worked in the past to get Nehemiah uh, to Jerusalem. And it's encouraging them to lift their eyes afresh and look to the God of heaven who can give them success. And you'll see there, together, collectively, the people declare, let's start rebuilding. And it's just the encouragement we need to look to the past and to, re, to be reminded how our Savior succeeded against all the odds. See, Jesus knew his mission on earth wasn't going to be a walk in the park. But when he envisaged how it would end when the horror of it all stared him in the face, the reality of it, and he looked it in the eye, and he looked his death 
in the eye. Understandably, he was overwhelmed and his first instinct was to run. And in his distress, Jesus went to his father in prayer and found his father to be an ever-present help in trouble. Against all the odds, he went to the cross. Against the cries of flesh and friends, against human sense, he died for us. Against the power of death, he rose victorious so that we might dwell in glory with him when life on this earth finally ends. So ultimately, on our final day on this planet, may our testimony be that like our master, Jesus, that against all the odds, we acted in faith with integrity and truth. We bore the shame and the pain and we inherited God's glory as promised in his holy word. Amen. Well, we're going to sing in a moment, um, but before we do so, would you join me for a short prayer? If you return to me, I will return to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are listening, even when it doesn't feel like it. Lord, we're being reminded this morning that you are our King. I pray that each one of us would be willing to say, not my will, but your will be done. To be led by you, even if it means stepping into the fire. Pray, Lord, that our heart for your work and for your kingdom would be so great that we would be compelled, that we wouldn't be able to resist your call. And our heart cry would be just to dare, oh Lord, give us success for your name's sake. Amen.